Well, good morning, City Church. How's everybody doing? Awesome. Well, thanks for letting me be here. Uh, Jeff actually texted me Thursday night. He said, hey, Ross, I'm, I'm sick. I'm not going to be able to make it. Will you fill in for me? I said, I'd, be, I'd really love to do that. I was super excited. He said, hey, there's one rule. The rule is you can't talk about sex. <laughs> so he said that you guys would totally get that and you'd be relieved to hear anything else besides sex. So I'm excited to tell you today you can rest assured we won't be talking about that. And uh, we'll be talking about something else. Um, as Nate was saying, uh, we moved back to Evansville a couple of years ago. Um, a local business owner asked if, we'd be, if I'd be someone who could be freed up to pursue the idea of churches working together for the good of the city, or how does the whole church bring the whole gospel to the whole city? And it took me uh, five months to say yes, and that's because I didn't have moving back to Evansville on my radar. I was living in Charlotte, North Carolina, doing my dream job. Uh, And my dream job was working with multiple churches um, to be a bridge between 20 and 30-somethings or millennials and the local churches. And I loved doing it. Uh, But God said, uh, I love Evansville. And would you want to go and try to do something in in that city? And I kind of just eventually softened up to the idea, and um, there's a lot of great things going on in Evansville, I quickly learned, and meeting with a bunch of people. And um, I'm excited to be here today. Um, the, the title of the message today is Heavensville, Today and Tomorrow. I know Heavensville is sort of like a cheesy, maybe tongue-in-cheek kind of phrase we hear sometimes. Sometimes people mean it really sincerely, and it's heartfelt, and it's meaningful, and that's awesome. And sometimes people go, ah, I don't know about that. So that's why it's today and tomorrow. There's today and maybe what it could be. And um, that's what we're going to talk about today. So I want to start by sharing with you a quote from a church father. He wrote this in 300 AD. His name's Tertullian, and he was writing, sort of mocking the Roman Empire. He says about Christians, We are but of yesterday, and we have filled every place among you, cities, islands, fortresses, towns, and marketplaces, the very camp, tribes, companies, palace, senate, forum. We've left nothing to you but the temples of your gods. You see, Christ followers, just 300 years after Jesus was raised from the dead, had infiltrated every area of the culture in the Roman Empire. And they had begun doing some transformative work. And so Tertullian is kind of mocking them, saying, what kingdom are you? We've already conquered you. It's an amazing thing. What an amazing influence the church was already having. And so I wanted to start us off by asking, how would we describe the influence of the church in our own country? If you were asked, what would you say? What would you say? Let me share a couple statistics with you. In the past decade, more people in the United States have become churchless than live in Australia or Canada. In fact, if we took all those churchless people together and put them in one country, it would be the eighth most populous country in the world. All those churchless people. And the younger a person is, the less likely he or she is to attend church. And 70% of my generation, millennials, believes local church is irrelevant to their life. Okay, so maybe we have some things to work on as church. Okay, well, what about Evansville? What if we ask the same question? Well, how would you describe the church's influence in our city? And we know there's a lot of really cool things going on. You guys are participating in some really cool things. Um, but there's also a lot of things that are troubling. 83% of this city on a survey would mark that they are Christian. 83%. This was a study conducted by the Welburn Foundation fairly recently. 
And 83% of people said they're Christians. So what would a city look like if 83% of its inhabitants were Christians? Would we expect to have 1,000 kids in the foster care system and only 150 families? That's just Vandenberg County. Would we expect to see uh, 33% of people admit on a survey that they've been binge drinking in the last month or two? That's twice the national average. We have a really high suicide rate. We have a really high infant mortality rate. We have a drug problem. We have a mental health crisis. We have a housing type crisis. Um, If you're familiar with the ALICE study, Asset Limited Income Constrained Employed, which is done by Rutgers University and United Way is probably who you heard it from here in our city. These are people who are working, uh, but if they break their arm or their kid breaks their arm or if they lose their job or they get a flat tire, they they are one life incident away from crisis. 47% of people in the city limits fit under that threshold, one to two people. And so something doesn't seem right, right? But I, I don't think we have a church problem. I think we have a mission problem. And so we're going to spend our morning, this morning, the rest of the time we have, I guess, um, getting more clarity on what Jesus' mission was. Because I think it's probably likely that we may have missed part of it, or we may have forgotten part of it and need a reminder. And then we're also going to look at how what you do every day gives you a chance to participate in Jesus' mission. So we have to start with an important question. What was the reason that Jesus came? You guys are probably a pretty illiterate community of of believers here, and I would expect that you could answer that question. I could probably pull anybody out of the audience and say, hey, come up here, grab the microphone, and tell us how you'd answer that question. Um, What was the reason that Jesus came? Probably could articulate something like, you know, God created the world, we messed it up, and Jesus came and died on a cross and so that we could be forgiven for our sins and have eternal life with him, and we can go to heaven. And that would be a very vital and important thing, and that would be true. You'd be right on. But was that all? Is there more? Is there more? Um, We could call that story the gospel of personal justification, It's rooted in us as individuals. It's what we receive because of Jesus Christ. But I think it's too small. I don't think it's the all-encompassing idea that Jesus had when he went around talking about the good news. It's incomplete. It's accurate, but incomplete. Okay, so you're probably thinking, I'm not sure about what you just said, Ross. Let's, Let's dive in together. All right, so what did Jesus say his mission was? Well, we can actually look that up. So turn in your Bibles or your Bible app or whatever you use to read Scripture. Or if you just want to look on the screen, it'll be up there. We're going to be in Luke 4. And while you're turning there, let me tell you a little bit about it. Um, This is after Jesus' baptism, after he's gone out into the wilderness and been tempted and and didn't sin in that temptation. Now he comes back and he's in the synagogue, which was his regular practice to do. And he stands up and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah 61, which has a bunch of history in the Jewish um, people, right? So he's in the synagogue and he reads this, Luke 4, 18 and 19. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is Jesus' mission statement. He says it right in the beginning of his ministry. The next three years, it's all going to be about this statement. And there's a lot going on here, right? Um, This is what he goes around and preaches. Uh, Just after this passage, 
Jesus goes into cities, and it says that he is preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. So he doesn't go around preaching, I'm going to die on a cross for the forgiveness of your sins so you can go to heaven. That hadn't happened yet. That's not what he went around preaching. Good news, gospel. He goes around preaching the good news or the gospel of the kingdom of God. And he doesn't just go around proclaiming that that reign is here. Like that's the new reality. The kingdom of God is among you. He actually demonstrates it, right? He does all these miraculous things. He starts kind of fixing things. So like blind people start seeing and lame people walk and deaf people hear. And people who are really hungry that spend their time around Jesus, they're they're not hungry anymore because he feeds 5,000 people with two fish and five loaves. And the seas get calmed. There's no chaos on the seas anymore. And dead people come back to life. So he's demonstrating what this kingdom of God is that he's proclaiming is now here. So this is the good news. So he's proclaiming it and he's demonstrating it. Okay, then what does he do? Well, then he says to his 12 disciples, he says, you go out and do the same thing. So, that, so they go out and they proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God and they demonstrate it, sometimes well, sometimes not so well. And then he sends out 72 disciples and they do the same thing. And so you see this happening and, and no one's really saying when they go, hey, Jesus dies for your sins so that you can be forgiven. They say the gospel is, the good news is the kingdom of God is here. The other thing that we see Jesus regularly doing is going away to pray. And I always wonder what he prays about. Because sometimes I go away to pray and I don't know what to pray. Well, he actually taught his disciples how to pray. And one of the things he says in there is, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's exactly the mission that Jesus was on. And he's praying about it. He's proclaiming that what is in heaven is coming to earth. In fact, has come to earth. Okay, you guys following me? So we need to understand now, what is this bringing heaven to earth thing, this gospel of the kingdom of God? What is that? How do we know what heaven is like? How do we know? Well, we have to go back to the very beginning. So we're going to make a trip back to Genesis 1, and we're going to end up in Revelation 21 eventually. So here we go. God creates the world and everything in it. He makes mankind, male and female, in his image. And they have perfect union with God. Everything is as it should be. God has, man has a good relationship with God, perfect union. They have perfect union with each other, Adam and Eve. They have perfect relationship with creation. And they have a perfect understanding of who they are. All of this was just the way that God intended it to be. And there's actually a Hebrew word for that, which is shalom. Shalom is one of my favorite words, and it's a really important word. Cornelius Plantinga, a much smarter person than I, he says shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. The webbing together of God, humans, and creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight. It's universal flourishing. It's wholeness. It's the way that God intended things to be. It's the way things are supposed to be. But we know the story, right? Adam and Eve, they choose to disobey God. And they they do the one thing that he said that they can't do. They had to do it. And so because of that, their relationship with God was broken. Their relationship with each other was broken. Their relationship with creation was broken. Uh, Now their work that they were given is going to be more difficult. So the ground is cursed and there's going to be pain in childbearing. There's all these things that go terribly wrong. And now things are not 
the way they're supposed to be. Shalom has been broken. There's unshalom, right? And the rest of the story from Genesis 4 all the way to Revelation 21 is this amazing story of God's intervening in his creation to restore shalom. And he's motivated by love, right? And so you guys probably know the story, but here, here it is. So he calls Abraham in Genesis 12, and he forms a people. And then he takes that people and he forms a nation, and he makes a covenant with Moses. And they're supposed to be a nation that's a light to the Gentiles and to reflect who God is and to be his shalom in the world, right? To bring that into reality. And he, then he establishes another covenant with David and says that your kingdom will have no end. And then Israel, we know, as, as we would probably do as well, they're unfaithful, they're disobedient, they reject God's covenant, and they, they say, we're going to do our own thing, we're not down with your plan. So God intervenes again. This time he sends his own son, who is fully God and fully man. He's perfect, and he has perfect relationship and union with his father. And he comes in, in the flesh, and he starts preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. He proclaims the kingdom of God and he demonstrates the kingdom of God. He starts saying, this is the way things are supposed to be. Let me show you what it looks like. He claims to be one with God. He dies and he's, he raises again from the grave. And so this cross is not just the thing that removes the penalty of our sin from our own lives. It's the thing that overthrows death in the entire of the world, right? It's victory. We just sang about it. See, all that was lost in the fall is redeemed in Jesus Christ. All of those relationships, not just our vertical relationship with God, but all of those things, our relationship with one another, our relationship with creation, our understanding of ourselves, right? So all, of, all that was lost in the fall can experience that redemption in Christ. And that's what we're waiting for. But Jesus says, in summarizing all of that, the king... Jesus has brought the kingdom of God out of God's space, heaven, and into our space, earth, to restore shalom, to put things back the way they're supposed to be. So Jesus brings the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven, into the reality of earth. And he says, the kingdom of God is here. It's to restore shalom. That's why he came. So, did Jesus' gospel, his good news, include the gospel of personal justification that we referenced earlier? Of course. And it's vital and it's important. But there's more to it. There's the good news of the kingdom of God. That redemption is for everything. That Jesus is on this mission to restore things the way God intended them to be. Ephesians 1.10 sums this up really beautifully. Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus. And he says that there's a plan that God's had and it was in the fullness of time that he decided to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Ephesians 1.10, this is a good one to remember. It's a collision of the things in heaven and the things on earth have been brought together in Christ. This was the mystery of God. This was what he was up to the whole time. The plan and then at the ripe moment, that's when Jesus came. So does this bring clarity to maybe your understanding of what Jesus' mission was? Does your idea of what Jesus wants to do jive, connect with the unfolding of Scripture? Or perhaps you might still say, as is very prevalent, 
in many places that God really cares about souls. At the end of the day, it's about souls. It's about winning souls. It's about us going to heaven when we die, getting our ticket to heaven, and we're going to be this disembodied soul that goes up and floats in heaven on the clouds, right? Like that you've heard that before. Maybe you've heard something like this quote. The created world is at best irrelevant, at worst a dark, evil, gloomy place, and we immortal souls who existed originally in a different sphere are looking forward to returning to it as soon as we're allowed to. That's not the gospel that Jesus is talking about. No, that's actually dualism. Like that creates a division between the spiritual things that are more important and the physical things that we shouldn't be about. That's Gnosticism. You know, so that's not the idea of the gospel. You know, God created the physical earth, the material. He said it was really good. He likes it. He put skin on. He became a human being. And then he has a resurrected body. Right now, today, he has a resurrected body. At the end, uh, when he returns, and when all things come to fruition that we're waiting for, we'll all have resurrected bodies. Like th- this is, there's no splitting of the spiritual from the temporal. In fact, it was his plan to unite all things in Christ. So, is it possible that we need to reconsider what Jesus is doing in our own city? What's he doing in Evansville? And why is that a fair foundational question even? But because of, instead of just like unleashing shalom into the world right after he was raised from the dead, he didn't do that. He left. He, he had trained up 12 ordinary guys, fishermen, tax collectors, list goes on, not clergy people, right? And he inaugurates his church, his commissioned community to take on his mission. And that's what they go and do. And that's what you're a part of. It's the greatest revolution in history. Well, we knew that from the beginning even that God was going to maybe hand it over, right? He, he created everything and then and kind of said, okay, you guys go and take creation. And then, then Jesus sends out the 12 and the 72. And, and we just kind of see this pattern going throughout Scripture. And so he's handed the mission off to us. See, we share a common mission, a commission of Christ, and we have a common union through Christ. So that's my favorite way to describe church. It's two words. We're a commissioned community. That's technically three words. A commissioned community, right? So we have this common mission, our our great commission. And we have this community that we're a part of because we're all in Christ. In fact, he's also, in Acts 17, 26, we learn that he has established the times and places that we live. So you're not in Evansville right now by accident. Whatever your job is or your student or whatever your position is here, uh, wherever you live, whatever neighbors are around you, that's not by accident. God orchestrated all of that. And so there's a great purpose behind that. So what we're going to do now is we're going to take a look at a specific group of people that were given a specific time and place to be. And we're going to, that's the people of Israel who have been exiled um, out of Jerusalem and into Babylon. If we can turn to Jeremiah 29, and we're going to look at verses 4 through 7. And just a little background, um, Jerusalem's been conquered by Babylon, things are not looking good, and in fact, uh, everyone um, is taken to Babylon, and they're sent into exile. And so they've been removed from their homes, everything that they've known, seems that God is not present, and they're, they're cast out. Okay? So here's where we pick up, verse 4 of Jeremiah 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. 
Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare. The Hebrew word again is shalom. Seek the shalom of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its shalom, you will find your own shalom. So first they learn that, well, God sent us here. That's not, that's not exciting that we've been sent into exile. But then God says something amazing. He says, pursue the good of Babylon. He says, pursue its shalom. Pray for it, in fact. What I want you to do is, is, is settle down there and plant roots and contribute to the economy. Make it grow. Make it better. You're supposed to plant vineyards. You're supposed to build houses. You know, get married. Have kids. Build families. Increase. Make sure you don't decrease. That's, that's what he says to do. And he says to seek the shalom of the city. Pray for it. I think that's a really relevant passage for our current situation as a group of people in Evansville. So we're supposed to look towards restoring shalom in our own city. The Scottish pastor from 1893, his name is Henry Drummond. He has an amazing quote, I think, about cities. Here's what he says. To make cities, that is what we are here for. To make good cities. That is for the present hour the main work of Christianity. For the city is strategic. It makes the towns. The towns make the villages. The villages make the country. He who makes the city makes the world. After all, though men make cities, it is the cities which make men. Okay, so if we're supposed to be seeking the shalom of our city, making a good city, if that's a main work of Christianity, well, what does a good city look like? How will we know what we should be trying to build? Isaiah 65 is a really great picture of a city we should be trying to build. It's a, it's a prophecy about a time when God's going to restore Israel, and it has some awesome things to describe. We don't have a slide for it, so you're going to have to just listen. But if you look at Isaiah 65, 18 through 25, um, we, we're going to list some things that is, is clear about this city that God describes. In verse 18, I'll read it for you. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. And just change out the word Jerusalem for Evansville. I will create Evansville to be a delight and its people a joy. And then 18 through 25, here are some of the things that this city is described as. There will be joy. There will be absence of weeping and crying. There will be no infant mortality. People will live out their full lives. They will build houses and live in them. They will sow and reap. In other words, they won't have to reap. They won't have somebody else reap what they've sowed. They won't have to work for someone else. They'll have fulfilling work. They'll have confidence that their children will face a better life. People experience the blessing of God. They have intergenerational family support. There's rapid answers to prayer. And there's an absence of violence. And it doesn't really matter where you come from. If you're a human being, like that's... That's the kind of city that you want to live in. Like, who wouldn't move to a city that, like that? So how do you and I make a city more and more reflective of that kind of city that's experiencing shalom, that reflects what God intended when he made? We've covered a whole lot of ground, and I want to boil this down to two things that you could do on a daily basis. The first one is love your neighbor. One of Jesus' most famous sayings, right? It's like, 
1B of the great commandment. Love God, love others. Love your neighbor as yourself. And you guys have an amazing community partner here called Community One. And I know you've done some awesome things with them. Well, I was hanging out with their staff a couple weeks ago, and I thought they had a really great way of thinking about loving your neighbor. There's kind of two sections of it. The first one is love where you are. Who is around you where you live? Who are your neighbors? Who are your actual neighbors that live like really in close proximity to you? And what would it look like to love your neighbors? It doesn't mean you have to be their best friend, but how can you get to know their name? How can you look out for their, their needs? How can you learn more about what they need? So one, one challenge is to love where you are. And the second thing that they said is love where we're called. Be a neighbor where we're called. We as the church. That could be overseas in a different place. It could be um, a lot of different places in the world. But one thing we know for sure, love where we're called, throughout scripture, God has a special place in his heart. It's very close to his mind. And that is those who are marginalized. Those who have experienced poverty. They may have been oppressed. Um, they're, they have systems of injustice working against them. And so we might think of, maybe, we, maybe we're going to be called to love in a place where it's under-resourced. So love your neighbor. That's the first one. The second one is rethink your work. Rethink your work. Our culture typically experiences, thinks about work in three ways. Okay, the first one is we, we, we think work is about survival. Work is about this paycheck that we get, and that just helps us survive through life. I remember my first job. I was pretty excited about becoming a pastor possibly in high school, so I asked my church if I could do something significant uh, to help, you know, and grow into this idea of maybe getting into this ministry thing. And they, they gave me the keys to the janitor closet and said, we need two hours of work on Sunday if you would, you know, clean up the chairs and tables, essentially. And so uh, that wasn't really what I had in mind. And I saw that job as simply about a paycheck. It was just something that I could do uh, to earn a little more income. And a lot of, uh, actually, the majority studies say of Americans see their job this way. Their job is about survival. Their job is about the paycheck. That's how they view work. Second way is status. We think about work as status. You know, we, we often define or feel a certain way about ourselves depending on the kind of work we do. We don't think about the quality. We think about what, how is this work valued in our current society. And if you take that um, line of thinking further, it will lead to all sorts of really bad things in your own experience of work. The third way is significance. So we think about work as, you know, I want to do something significant with my life. I have to pour myself into it. Millennials really want to do something significant. And if you're in Christian work, Christian world, if you were following Christ, you might think that the most significant thing you could do is to go work in a church. I need to go make sure I can be a pastor or a seminary professor or a missionary, or I need to run a nonprofit and do all this great, great Christian stuff in the world. Well, when we think about it that way, we're, we're actually kind of thinking that not all work really matters the same. We've created this hierarchy, right, where there's, there's more important work than others in God's eyes. Um, the problem is it doesn't really, none of those really go with the biblical view. I want to read a quote to you by Dorothy Sayers. She's a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, and she's quite brilliant on the topic of work. Here's what she says to help us get a little more understanding. The church has allowed work and religion to become separate departments. 
and is astonished to find out that as a result, the work of the world is turned to purely selfish and destructive ends, and that the greater part of the world's intelligent workers have become irreligious, or at least uninterested in religion. But is it astonishing? How can anyone remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of his life? The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling him is this, that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. We've bought into some really bad thinking about work. In fact, probably a lot of you just deserve an apology because you haven't, no one's valued the work that you do with nine-tenths of your life. That's not what the Bible says about work. And we're going to figure that out by just looking at Genesis 1 mostly. In the beginning, God created, right? When, he, when we say that God created, that means that he worked. The very first thing we learn about God is that he worked. And then he made us in his image, So we're supposed to be workers. That's one of the main things that God does. In fact, you may not have known it, but he gave us a job description in Genesis 1.28. So God makes us in his image, and then he blesses us, and he says, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, I said I wasn't going to talk about sex, but actually the very first thing that God says to humanity is to have sex. He says, be fruitful and multiply, (laughs) right? Well, that word fruitful in the Hebrew has procreativity as part of it, but the other part of it is productivity. So we're not just filling the earth with people and building families, but we're also working the ground. Essentially, God says, I've created and it's very good. I'm really happy with it. It's your playground now. You go and build other things. So, like, God makes grain, but we make bread. And God gives us grapes, but we make wine. God gives us stones and trees, and we build houses and neighborhoods and cities. So we are co-laboring. We are cultivating what God has already given us. That's, like, our job. And all of the work that you guys do is part of that story. See, when we are doing those things, we are actually transforming the culture. Or you could say we're bringing shalom into our city through our work, through what we do every day. And if you think about it, um, Jesus worked. Maybe you hadn't thought about it recently, but you know, Mark 6 tells us that, that Jesus was a carpenter. The, the Greek word is craftsman so he was maybe working with wood or stone or metal he was a builder and you know the scholars would speculate that you know his earthly father joseph probably died because we don't know anything else about him after the birth narratives um and it would be the oldest son taking over the family business and so it's not out of the question that jesus was a small business owner and that's what he did with like the majority of his life up until he was 30 Right? Then it's three-year ministry. It's pretty, it kind of changed our perspective about what work could be. And we'll work in the new Jerusalem. You know, we're on this progression. Like we started in Genesis 1 in this garden. And when we get to Revelation 21, it's not a garden that comes down out of heaven. It's a city. And so the city is coming down, the new Jerusalem. 
And there's all kinds of work to do. And the good news is there won't be toil. There won't be frustration like you experience right now in your job. There'll be all this great stuff going on. You'll be a part of it. It's amazing. So when we make good tables, when we make good coffee, when we create great spreadsheets, uh, when we make good loans, when we raise kids, when we build families, when we make art, when we do really good buildings and parks and clothes and whatever it is that you do with the most of your, most of your time, when we do those things, we are bringing shalom into our city. So if no work is secular and all work is sacred, then what you do every day matters. And I'm not just talking about paid work. There's work you do as a student. There's work you do with your hobby. There's sometimes the work you do that does pay you, but then there's other work that you do that you really like doing. All of that counts. All of it. It's all kingdom work. The scattered church is sent out after gathering on Sunday into all these different channels of culture to build a city that more and more reflects the kind of city that God would want Evansville to be. You are all part of that. And so where has God placed you in our city? We're going to put up on the screen seven channels of culture, and hopefully you kind of find yourself in one of them or striving to be in one, right? All right, so if you're in the arts or entertainment, your vision is to express beauty and God's creativity and to tell stories well, right? So business, the ultimate goal of business is to create wealth, generate wealth and prosperity. The ultimate goal of education is a vision to teach, to pass on character and values and knowledge so that we can continue building. Government, well, we're supposed to have a vision of sound rule. Healthcare, a vision to relieve suffering. Media, vision of truth-telling and accountability. Social sector, a vision of charity and justice. You know, what I didn't put on there is church because the church is in all of those. All of you guys are in those. That's an amazing vision. So all of us go out and we work towards probably one of these things and we're trying to create that in our city. So how can the whole church bring the whole gospel to the whole city? How can we say like Tertullian, we have filled every place among you and left nothing to you but your temples? Well, we have to first see ourselves as one church. We're all in this together, the church of Evansville. And we all have one mission. And that's the mission of proclaiming the kingdom of God and demonstrating what that looks like. And the second thing is we need to recognize that every one of us, pastors and non-pastors, are in full-time, sacred, kingdom-building, shalom-bringing roles in every channel of culture. So Evansville will be Heavensville when everything that's wrong is made right. And that is the mission that God has asked us to be a part of, that Jesus has passed on to us that's only possible through him. So, three things you can do. Love your neighbor, rethink your work, and pray for the shalom of Evansville. So let's do that right now. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this awesome time to be together. As we were singing, I was just uh, reminded of how you make old things new. And that's what I hope for today. That maybe... We need to rethink, re-remember, reconsider this mission that you gave 
all the way back in Genesis and then again through Jesus and how that applies to what we're doing today. But we sang old songs in new ways and we're in an old building with a new form. The reminders are all around us. There's, there's an amazing vision statement on the wall that this group of people here would bring social and cultural and spiritual renewal to the city of Evansville and beyond. And they can do it by being transformed by Jesus Christ. God, that's my prayer for City Church. That this group of people would see what they do every day, who they love that's around them, and how they pray really does bring shalom right into this city. And that's what you're working toward, and we're joining you in it. But God, I also pray it for the church of Evansville, for this whole city. There's a lot of people who love you, that care about this thing. I pray that you'd give them a fresh vision, that you would show them that it comes from you. So God, thank you for our time this morning together. May we be changed by hearing from your word. In your name we pray. Amen.